0: going to go ahead and get started. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. Our final saint for this year, we're in the last week week of our saint series. Our final saint is kind of one of the patron saints of my own life. In fact, our, our family made a pilgrimage to this saint's hometown as part of our sabbatical in 2017. He was born, let me see if I can say this name, he was born named Giovanni di de Pietro de Bernard Bernardio. I think you're supposed to go Bernardio, right? Can you say Bernardio? Bernardio. That's, that's better, something like that. Um, but you know him as St. Francis of Assisi. Francis was born in what is now Italy at the height of the Middle Ages. He was named Giovanni until his father took a trip to France and came back home and changed his son's name to Francesco, which means a little Frenchman. And there's a joke in there somewhere. I just don't know what it is. I couldn't find it. It's something to do with Napoleon, but if you know it, come tell me afterwards. Um, The little Frenchman. His mother, that was the joke. That was a good joke. Uh, mother, his mother, Pica, was French as well, and so he grew up learning both French and Italian at her knee, and especially fell in love with the French ballads popularized by the roving troubadours, sort of the touring rock stars of the day. And his father was a wealthy merchant, wealthy for the time at least, um, so he sold expensive cloth. And so Francesco grew up in privilege. In this little town. And he learned enough Latin to work in his father's business, which he did, but his true passion was this troubadour subculture. And he, as he grew up, he kind of became the ringleader of this little group of young men who had, um, I don't know, had like, they were obsessed, all of them, with things like um, fashion, food, clothing, music philosophy, art, culture, just those kind of things. Or, or you might say that Francis was, in a sense, the original hipster. He was the first. <laughs> and, and he had money. So um, he bankrolled much of the activity. Um, but, but it wasn't just that he was always buying, although that helped. It, it was that from an early age, um, Frances- Francesco was a man of intense action and passion. He had this magnetic personality that drew people toward him. Now, the time in which he lived is often called the Dark Ages, which is misleading. It was actually a time of great art and culture in which all of Europe was sort of ruled by these little local city-states or societies that maybe weren't so sophisticated or scientific, but they were incredibly creative and in many ways very virtuous, In fact, G.K. Chesterton, the great writer, once noted that about three-quarters of the greatest men who ever lived came out of these little towns. And officially, they were all part of the Roman Empire, but the way things functioned, they were sort of independent little republics. And one of these little towns was called Assisi. It was nestled atop a hill about halfway between Florence and Rome. And Assisi is just a stunningly beautiful place. And Francesco was sort of the hairy styles of Assisi. And by all accounts, Francesco also had this high sense of duty and conscience. Um, he tells a story of uh, when he was selling cloth at his father's. Um, market, he was interrupted by this beggar who, who asked for alms during a sale, and he, he got really mad at him, dismissed him, and they felt so bad, he chased him down and apologized and gave him money. And on the other hand, he also had this weird um, phobic kind of thing, repulsion, for people who were sick, especially lepers, and there was a leper colony in, in Assisi, and he always felt really bad about it, but he sort of despised them, and didn't want to be around him. And, and these little Towns that he lived, like Assisi, where he lived, were almost always in, in little local wars and skirmishes with each other. And taking part was, it was almost like playing football in a small town. like you either played or you got ridiculed by all of your friends. And so when he was old enough, he bought some arm, a horse and some armor and rode off to war against one of the other towns. But in his very first battle, One of their own men from their town committed either like some sort of error or an act of cowardice. And the whole bunch of them from their town were captured and imprisoned. And this poor guy was just getting crushed by his friends. But Francis um, took care of him and and felt bad and treated him kindly. And eventually, he got so sick in prison, they just sent him home to die. But um, he started to get better. And he noticed that something within him had shifted um, it took him about a, an entire year to, to recover, and when he did, he found it impossible to just return to his old friends and a life of drink and song, and he really began to question what his life was going to be about. And one night, he had this dream where he saw two swords in the shape of a cross, and he woke up and was convinced that this was a dream from God telling him to go join the, cru- the Crusades in the Holy Land. And so he, he packed up all this stuff. They had this big parade send-off of, of their guy to Jerusalem. About a day into his journey, he had another dream, saying, you misunderstood the first dream, and so he skulked back into town. Uh, this time, more confused than ever, and now humiliated a little bit. And, and Francis really, at this time, he kind of had no purpose. He stopped working, stopped partying. He was convinced there was more to life and that God had some purpose for him but everything he had tried at that point to make a, a mark on the world had resulted in his his humiliation so he began to to question the culture itself because it seemed to him like everything the culture celebrated as success was a little bit empty and meaningless to him and he began to to flounder he would just walk or ride his horse for hours sitting alone thinking one day he's on his horse and he saw a, a, a coming toward him from the other other end of the road, a leper, this one thing he had allowed himself to despise, the one class of people he could not love. And in that moment, something clicked within Francis, and he realized that his courage would not be proven on the battlefield or in commerce or in wealth or in achievement. It would be proven right here in this moment to love the unlovable thing when nobody would be around to even know about it. And so that's what he did. He jumps off his horse, runs to the leper, and embraces him, right? And this began a lifelong ministry to lepers and to the sick and those who were left out and left behind. And he really kind of never looked back from that moment on. His life was set on a whole new course. Now, I said he was a man of action and a man of passion. And so of course, he returned home to a CC right away and started giving all of his possessions away to the poor. And then he went to his dad's shop and started giving away his father's fine cloth to the poor, which did not go over well with his dad. His dad was very ticked and tried you know everything he'd do to get him to come back. In fact, he even dragged him before the magistrate and the bishop and had them chastise him too. Just, just like, get with the program, get back to work. And he, his closing salvo was, even the clothes on your back are provided by me. And so Francis stripped of his clothes right there in court, and literally walked out of court naked, and then renounced his um, part in his father's estate and began living as a hermit outside of town and serving the poor and the sick. And there was this old church outside of town. The roof was caved in, the walls were crumbling, and um, this is kind of a, a, it's either, depending on who you believe, it, it is the church rebuilt or it's a replica. But Francis would go to this place and sit and pray One day he was sitting there gazing at the cross and he heard this voice kind of in his mind saying, Francis, go and rebuild my church, which as you see is falling down. And he was convinced this was God speaking to him. And because he's like kind of a little impulsive, he was like, he must mean this church. So he like got up and started rebuilding this church that was crumbling. And um, so this is what he began working on. From time to time, one or two of his old friends would come sort of do a little, wellness check on Francesco, who had clearly lost his mind, and he would say, I'm fine, and then say, come take a walk with me. They would take these long walks. He would tell them about what he was discovering, about the futility of their pursuits, about how he was chasing a meaningful life and thought he might have found the way, and pretty soon all these rich party boys from Assisi started to join Francis outside of town. And so really for the rest of his life, he would live in community with other men, serving the poor, working and praying, and and pursuing this alternative way of life. And they became known as the Franciscans. And at first they did not consider themselves to be monks, and their their movement was not sanctioned by the church. Um, they, They also didn't cloister themselves off on like scenic hilltops like the Benedictines would or other orders. They lived in and among normal people, were full um, participants in community life, but they participated from the bottom. They lived with the poor and they would serve the marginalized as their pastors. If you want a a model for this, you know Robin Hood, think of Friar Tuck. Friars, Franciscans were Friars, right? This is is what that is like. and, and this is part of what made um, Francis so historically powerful. The culture of his time is what's known as honor-shame culture. You know what I mean when I say that, an honor-shame culture? It's where, like, it's a social economy where honor and shame are, like, commodities that can be traded and leveraged. And the goal of the system is to try to raise your social status. So what they would try to do is befriend somebody who's just like one step above them on the ladder, usually by serving that person's interest so they would be obligated to them. And they would try to build these alliances and then leverage them for social credibility. And then they would protect their status through these intricate systems of norms and pressures and manners and shame. Everyone hustling just to, to gain or maintain their Status and so honor cultures are just filled with anxiety, and insecurity, because every single interaction you have, the stakes are high. If it's an equal, you're competing with them. If it's someone above, it's a chance to advance. And they people could be ruthless and cruel to gain and protect their social clout. And there was essentially no belief that a person had intrinsic value just by virtue of being human. Value was tied to their social status, not their createdness or their humanity. I mean, can you imagine living in a world in which a person's value is connected to their social clout or the number of followers they have on social media or likes and shares that they can generate, right, by some platform? It's absurd. Who would live this way? Um, But Francis sort of rediscovered the Jesus who um, came to the poor, as the poor and gave them his time and attention. And, and how Jesus taught, as we read earlier, human value comes from our identity as, as the children of God. And no religion can give this, no culture can take it away. To be human is just a, a precious gift of being a child of God. It's what Paul wrote about in Colossians 3 when he said, your real life is hidden with Christ in God, so he said. So our true identity is determined not by outward appearances um, or by the judgment of the culture about us at any given time. The, the real you, the real me, it's hidden with Christ and God. And it, this means a couple of things. One is that our identity is safe because it's held by God, in a sense. So it can't be diminished or stolen or, or, or destroyed. Who we are, even that we are, that we exist, is, is somehow rooted in God's own life. And so it's sure. That's one thing. The second thing is that our identity is hidden, which is kind of weird to think about. But that means it's, in a sense, a mystery, even to us. And I think this explains much of human longing and desire, as well as you know, our frustrating insecurities and self-deception, even our fears, our violence. There's a sense in which we don't know who we are because our lives are hidden in God. And so we have to go to God to learn who we are. And we don't generate our lives. We're receiving them. And they're kind of, in a sense, constant, even our our identity, who we are, what it means to be me, it's constantly unfolding, and at any given time is a bit of a mystery, even to us. Not as in mystery as in, like, unknowable, but as in endlessly knowable. Whatever you know, there's always more to it. This is part of what it means to be human. It it involves this self-discovery, right? This growing, stretching, changing, constantly Learning to see the mystery of our own identity, as Francis learned, not by climbing some arbitrary social ladder, but by somehow turning to God, which for Francis meant turning to Christ and which for Christ meant turning toward the poor, the least of these. So Francis made this kind of giant leap, and he really began to see his life as this great mystery that was unfolding and and emerging literally from the very life of God. And this discovery was kind of a radical shift because it changed all of his social interactions and relations. He all of a sudden he wasn't trying to climb this hierarchy. He was on a quest, on this great adventure, chasing the mystery of his own identity, not by climbing, but by falling, by descending. And so he led this movement of men. And then Claire came along. And led the women. We'll, do, we'll have to give Claire a whole. She deserves a week of her own. Sometime we'll do that. But he, he led these men who stepped out of the neurotic insecurity and anxiety and just the fragility of their day into this much larger reality that in Christ we belong to God. That we're not competitors scratching our way to the top. We're questers. We're pilgrims on a journey of self-discovery that happens largely through the pursuit of God and embedded within this pursuit of those who are on the margins. And what we see in the life of St. Francis is that if we take this radical shift seriously and begin to kind of engage it in intentional ways, it not only transforms us personally, like we change and grow deeper in our own character, our identity, but it has this potential to really challenge the culture itself. Like, we can become, as a community, a genuine alternative, bearing witness to just this whole better way to be human. Jesus describes this in the Sermon on the Mount, and especially the Beatitudes that we read earlier. This, this vision of the world is kind of inverted, upside down, especially from the honor-shame culture. Jesus spoke of a world in which the poor are truly blessed. The meek get the inheritance, the oppressed are elevated, the peacemakers are exalted, and the pure in heart see God. Matthew um, chapter 6, he says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you think about it, to forgive is, in a sense, to refuse to exploit some other person's fault for, so, so that you can feel superior to them. And this is the kind of economy that Francis just checked out of. And he said, any any community that can do this, follow this teaching, will be radically different. In that same chapter of Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't make a show of your religion. Don't leverage your religion for status. He said, do your fasting and praying in in private. And then in public life, let people find you among the poor and the weak. Completely subverts the... The role of religion in, in that honor-shame culture. Later in that chapter, he says, don't chase fine clothes and food, and then you won't worry about tomorrow. In Matthew 10, he says, um, he hangs out with sinners and, and tax collectors and gets critiqued for it. One of them, by the way, one of the tax collectors was named Matthew, whose gospel we're reading from. Matthew 10 also warns, warns against religious kind of one-upsmanship Matthew 19, Jesus teaches about the deception of wealth. He says, it's not what you think it is. Matthew 20, he says, the first will be last, and the last will be first. In Matthew 22, he tells the parable of the feast where the rich hoity-toity people won't come, and so he he asks the beggars, and they come. In Matthew 23, he says, don't become like the the religious types who are whitewashed tombs, he says. "They're, They're clean on the outside, they look good on the outside, but inside, they're full of death. This type of teaching just really took hold in Francis' imagination. And he began to order his life in this little community around Christ's teaching. And as he did, what he found is he came alive much more than he was before. And because of his kind of charisma and natural passion and joy, others just joined along with him. And his life fanned into flame, this unstoppable movement of Lay people, this is really important, wasn't among the priests. He wasn't trained as a priest. This is a movement of just ordinary folks. It was unique in this time. And they began to embrace this Franciscan way of life. And so, living in Assisi and little towns and villages in the surrounding area, the Franciscans, as they came to be known, became a source of renewal, really, for the entire church and even all of Western civilization. And so there's a sense in which Francis eventually realized that the the call he had heard in that church that day, rebuild my church. It wasn't just about the little chapel that he was working on. It was about the entire church. And in fact, to this day, there are tens of thousands of what are called first order Franciscan. These are men who have taken a vow to follow the rule, the the way of life of St. Francis And then there are second order Franciscans. These are the women who follow under the lineage of Claire. And then third order Franciscans who are just regular ordinary folks who pursue the way of Francis Francis in the setting in which they live. And and they all make three vows that shape their personal life and their common life. And I want us to consider these really quickly um, to see if there are ways we could embrace these vows in our own lives. And they may at first seem unattainable, kind of out there, but the Franciscans actually worked really hard to adapt them for normal people like you and me, just to help us discover our own true identity that is hidden with Christ and God. The first vow is a vow of poverty. Um, anybody down with a vow of poverty? We want to do this right now? Um, yeah, me neither. Um, on the surface, you know, poverty is it's the refusal of wealth, and the renunciation of all possessions, which to this day, Franciscans don't own many possessions at all. In fact, um, you can always tell a Franciscan from the other orders, because for one, they wear brown robes, but they also wear, wear around their waist a simple belt or a, a rope that serves as a belt, because in Francis' day, the belt is where you kept your money, they were, they were money belts, that's where they had their wallet. So the rope came to symbolize, I got no money. I got no wallet on my belt. You can see, there's nothing here. Now, my guess is that um, most of us aren't up for like a legit vow of poverty today. Um, and of course, there's nothing wrong with owning possessions either. But I think that we all kind of know, living as we do in a very affluent society, that the things that we own can very, very easily end up sort of owning us. We can start serving possessions like they're our master, you know what I mean? And as we do this, we become confused about who we are. It hits us on the level of identity because our stuff can't tell us who we are. And it's this way because we live in this world that just makes a ton of judgments um, about us by way of looking at our stuff, you know, our, your profession, the neighborhood you live in, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, and on and on. So, so for us, I think a vow of poverty might be more about just changing the way that we relate to our possessions and refusing to serve them and draw our value, our identity from them. So for, for the layperson, I think we could really substitute the word stewardship for poverty. And I do think that we could all make a vow of stewardship treating all all our possessions as a resource to be stewarded, kind of as a means to an end and not an end in themselves. And the end that they're a means to is the kingdom of God, not our own self-enhancement. And, of course, making good on a vow like this, we we teach all the time at Redemption, has to do with living in solidarity to the poor, to the left out. That's how we learn this. And, And to practice stewardship, which is really just about kind of trying to find a, a workable pace in which we can pour our lives out and our resources out for those who are struggling, right? That's, that's kind of a, that could be a vow of stewardship. The second vow is of chastity, which we know n- next to nothing about in our day. Um, originally chastity obviously meant abstaining from marriage and sex and children. But the the Franciscans, because they had so many third-order Franciscans who were already married and living and working just like us, they taught that the true goal of chastity is not the abstaining part. It's to learn how to love. Learn how to love purely. That's that's the whole goal of chastity, to find a way to keep from treating other people as a means to an end and objectifying them. Um, Redemption... Our, our vow of of chastity is much more like what we talk about often as reverence, reverence for another person. That, that would be our kind of analog. Um, a good example of this, probably my favorite one that I use a lot, is the ancient greeting from, it's, I think it's Hindu in origin, where you, where you you bow and clasp your hands and you say namaste. That's their greeting. And namaste, what, what it means is that the image of God within me, that's living in me, recognizes the image of God living in you and bows in reverence to it and says, Namaste. And, um, when our kids were little, we, had, we taught them this. And um, our, our practice was, after they got out of the bath when they were little or later in the shower, um, they, would, they would hop out and we would throw a towel around them and go like this, go Namaste. And they had to bow back and say Namaste to us. It was super cute. But then the problem with this is that I had two boys, and sometimes they were crazy at bath, t- bath time, and I'd be soaked and ticked and screaming at them and losing my mind, and then they would get out of the shower at the other thing, and I had to go namaste to them, which was <laughs> which was bad, right? And so I was, I was chastened. That's chastity. chastity. I was chastened because um, I had not treated them in that moment, it, especially... I, had not greeted that stage of life that they're in with a kind of reverence. And so I'd have to say, I'm sorry, it's not about you. It's about me. Your dad's a moron. Don't ever stop having fun. I'll try to lighten up a little bit. Um, so that, that would be our version of a vow of chastity. It's reverence for all human beings, never treating them as a means to an end. Francis um, would sometimes make his guys, he would send them out in pairs, to go, you know, just get out of, out of where they, are. just get a, get a change and maybe bear witness to the gospel. And he would always say, look, I'm sending you in pairs because if you go just by yourself, you'll always struggle to explain the gospel in words. But if you go in pairs, they'll see it by the way that you treat one another. And he said, it is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching or maybe his most well-known quote, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That's Francis. This is from the, from the vow of chastity. It just means reverence for other human beings. And to live this out as a community is revolutionary and, and can point other people to a new way of being. And this practice of reverence really made... Francis, a powerful agent for peace. There are many stories of him brokering peace deals between warring armies or factions or families. And he taught them, no one is to be called an enemy. All are your benefactors, and no one does you harm. You have no enemy except yourselves. Can you imagine if the powerful in our time would take this to heart? The third vow was a vow of obedience, which I think is actually probably the most Difficult for us to even understand because we were raised on freedoms and self-determination. And so obedience is kind of offensive to us. We're like, you know, I, I am free to determine my own life. We resent any kind of limitation like that. So obedience is it's a radical kind of shift of thinking. The Franciscans were a little bit different. They didn't cloister together. They were always out dispersed. You know, usually you're cloistered in one place and your obedience is to the abbot. They were dispersed. And so their obedience was to the neighbor. That's how they practiced it. So it was kind of like um, the Princess Bride in Wesley, where anytime time she'd ask him to do something, he would say, as you wish. Yeah, we have been thoroughly liturgized by the Princess Bride, right? <laughs> This is, this is how they treated the friars, right? They, they, friars would just say whatever they were asked to do. They'd say, as you wish, whatever I have is, is yours. And this would force people to kind of check themselves so that they weren't abusing these, these friars. If, if you're a parent with children, you know this because your kids have to obey you. You have to be careful what you ask them to do. Just the presence of a Franciscan saying as you wish to every request made people examine their requests and motives. It's deeply challenging. One biographer I read said, Francis, that he threw people into crisis by the quality of his being. It sounds a lot like Jesus to me. It's the kind of impact obedience, a vow of obedience can have. For us, I think the word I would use is a vow of service. That would be the analog. Serving others, just letting, let our response to family, friends, neighbors, coworkers be as you wish, as you wish, you know, without you know, self harm. I'll serve you. So his followers took these three vows: poverty, chastity, obedience. For us, it might look like stewardship, reverence, and service. And and at first blush, you kind of look at this and you think, this seems kind of like an austere way to live. Your life you would expect them to be almost like a kind of dour community but it could not have been more different Um, they they were crazy partying fun-loving monks i mean this sounds weird to say but that's that's what they were they were nuts In, in fact like part of what francis is most famous for is his relationship to animals like everywhere this guy lived turned into a zoo He's just welcoming animals everywhere he went. When he was critiqued for this, he said, I'll tell you why I do it. The dog stayed with me in the storm. The man, not even in the wind. <laughs> and he told people, like, the way you treat animals is the way you treat people. Just watch. And, and so he would preach to the squirrels, and he would make friends and sing songs with the birds. And Franciscans, were they were still are kind of nutty like this. If you anybody follow Richard Rohr, He's a Franciscan man, and he's hilariously strange. Um, They were artists. They wrote plays and performed plays. They sang songs. There was just this revelry of life and joy and creativity among them. And and the the reason, as they kind of unpacked, why is this happening? Why is this our response? It's because they checked out of that honor-shame culture, because if you kind of Stop being a slave to that. with your life made bitter with hard work, as Exodus says, then it's not constantly stealing away joy. And joy just sort of leaks out. St. Franciscans just embraced this carefree way of life and became generous and deep because their vows kind of produced in them this sort of naive, childlike way of being. And the miracle of it all was that it had a profound impact on the Franciscans themselves, but not just them. The whole region was transformed. And then not just the region, but the entire church. And then because of that, had this deep impact on the world at large. And it wasn't on purpose at all. Francis said, first do what is necessary, then do what is possible. And before you know it, you're doing the impossible when all you think you're just doing is the necessary? And he did the impossible without really even meaning to. And his influence grew and grew. At one point, he was actually summoned to Rome to meet with the Pope to give justification for this disruptive reformation that he was accidentally leading within the church. And they said that Francis, they had, the Pope had decided to condemned the movement before he ever came in. But Francis won his favor, won, won the Pope over by speaking with such joy and passion and wonder that um, when they watched him, they said it was as if his feet were dancing as he spoke. And so the Pope's like, like, I don't know what Francis is drinking, but I'll have a glass of that. Like, we'll just let this go ahead. And at the end of his short life, he only lived into his 40s, having achieved more to reform the church than almost anyone in history up to that time. He humbly said, um, right before he died, let us begin again, for until now we have done nothing. It's kind of his further up and further in. And that posture of staying humble and small, staying awake and open, a posture of wonder, you know, and joy to whatever is unfolding, just this adventure of figuring out who we are, it's, it's something I still re- admire very much and aspire to be and something I think embodies the life of Christ. In fact, one biographer called Francis the last Christian because no one since had given, has given us such a full look at what it means to be like Christ. Just live with complete abandon and joy. And he made this powerful shift by refusing to draw his identity from the culture, but rather from the way of Christ and by living as though his very being really was hidden with Christ and God and a mystery to, to himself even. And so the call of his life was to chase, chase the mystery. Life then became this joyful quest to discover what it meant just to be Francesco, or Giovanni, whichever name would stick. And he became famous for this. He taught this to the church. Later in his life, he, he was so well-known, people were constantly coming to get some time with him, and Francis took to spending long hours in this little cave in the woods outside Assisi. Sisi. And um, this is one of the famous um, medieval paintings of him outside his cave. And they would ask him, what are you doing out there in your cave all alone? And he would say, I, I'm, I meditate on this one prayer, this one line. He'd say it over and over, and he would contemplate this simple question. It's this. He would ask, who are you, O God, and who am I? Who are you, O God, and who am I? When I, when I learned the Jesus prayer like with a rope, you learn to like strap that to your breathing, and if you do it enough, it becomes a habit, and then the idea is that over time anytime you have a little bit of space these words will emerge and after a while I stopped doing using the Jesus prayer started using this this prayer who are you oh God and who am I and I'll say it breathing in who are you O God trying to draw my identity from God and who am I just letting go of what that means who are you oh God when I breathe in And who am I? Like when I wake up in the middle of the night now, this is what emerges from my soul, this question from Francis. Who are you, O God? Who am I? It's powerful prayer. I say it constantly. Not what am I? Am I important? Am I rich? Am I powerful or poor or weak? Not what am I? Who am I, oh God? And who are you making me forming me and this is the question that Francis I think puts to all of us and the question I want to leave us with it's a prayer I hope you'll memorize who are you O God and who am I and so I commend to you the life of Saint Francis of Assisi may his memory be a blessing let's pray Lord, we give you thanks for the life of St. Francis and pray that his, um, his life will be an example to us and that his words will stick with us, especially this prayer, Who are you, O God? And what does it mean to be me in this time and in this place? We know, that God, that we're fighting against so much um, just powerful... Formation through culture to generate our lives, to trust and status. This simple idea of a life that's hidden away with Christ somehow in your life. And so we have to turn to you to find it. And as we do, you, you point us back toward those on the margins and those who are hurting and you say, you know, pour yourself out for them and then you'll know. You'll know who you are. We just confess how hard it is to live this way. And we ask for your help. Amen. I invite you to stand, please, and we're going to receive communion. The way we do it, if you're new, um, we, we just uh, release row by row, and you come forward and take a piece of bread, you dip it into the cup, and then receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can answer, I will remember or however you feel comfortable. The reason we do this is because on the night before Christ was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and blessed it and he broke it and he shared it with all of his his followers and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took one cup and blessed it and they all shared drinking the same cup. And um, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new deal between humanity and God that's accomplished by his life. And then he said, whenever you gather as my followers, eat this bread, drink this cup, and in a sense, take my life into your life and be made out of the stuff I'm made out of and then go out into the world and be salt and light. And so this is why we receive communion and why we ask anybody who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. So will you pray with me a blessing? Lord, we do ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us and make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness all to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?